Good morning, and a warm welcome to all of you, wherever you are, and, uh, and especially our sanghas in Madison, England, Alpine, Texas, and our dear friends in Hawaii and Chicago. So I'm, only, I'm going to give one short announcement at the beginning, and then uh, we'll see if we have time for a few more announcements at the end. But Appamata will remain closed, at least through the month of May. So this is to assure the safety of the Sangha, and we, we hope you'll be patient as we attempt to learn how to allow folks to return safely. So, <clears throat> so I'd like to talk today about a very interesting sutra translated from the Tibetan, <clears throat> and I think it might take a bit longer than usual, because I don't want to just summarize it. The language of it is really important. Uh, I'll also send the full sutra out to the Sangha, so you won't need to take notes today. If we do run long, uh, we might not have time for um, Ask Me Anything, so uh, that might be, we might be a little abbreviated today. This sutra is called the Sutra of Questions Regarding Death and Transmigration, <clears throat> and it's translated by Tom Tillemans. So as an introduction, this sutra only exists in Tibetan. There's no counterpart in Pali or Sanskrit or Chinese. According to the Kalafan, it was translated into Tibetan during the earliest dissemination of the teachings, and therefore the translation was done outside the 9th century institutional mainstream translating project. It's considered significant both philosophically and historically as a reliable witness to relatively early Indian non-Buddhist views concerning death and the Buddhist arguments against them. So it seems likely to me that this actually is an authentic record of the Buddha's discourses and a very illuminating clarification. The language of it is consistent with what we read in the Pali Canon. <clears throat> it provides the Buddha's answers to questions we all share about death, but I'll let the sutra speak for itself. First, the background. In India, at the time of the Buddha, there was a conception of death and the afterlife in the Vedic tradition, which stretches back to the first millennium BCE, so a thousand years before the Christian era. After death, the dead transition to the realm of their ancestors. The transition puts them in a kind of limbo before they reach it. <clears throat> the family should present food offerings to assist the newly dead in the transition. In that tradition, however, theories of rebirth, karma, and liberation generally play no roles. <clears throat> so the setting of the sutra is Kapalavastu, the city in the Sakyan kingdom where Gautama Buddha grew up. It's located on the northern side of the Gangetic plain near Lumbini. So the sutra um, says, in Kapalavastu, King Sudodana, the Buddha's father, is observing the funeral rites for Nandaja, a fellow member of the Sakya clan who was much loved and who died in the prime of his life. According to the tradition of his time, his family, wailing, had gathered his horses, elephants, clothes, gold and silver, pearls, crystals, and food and drink as offerings. Wondering what benefit will be derived from the various rituals and offerings being performed, King Sudodana asks if he might question the Buddha about death. He asks seven questions. Here are the questions. Number one, 
Blessed One, regarding the rebirths of beings who pass from this world to the next, are gods reborn as gods? Likewise, are humans, animals, hungry ghosts, and hell beings reborn consistently as their own kind, respectively as animals, humans, hungry ghosts, and hell beings? In other words, in the afterlife, will we be in the same form as in life and the same rank? Two, second question. Or, blessed one, when they pass from this life, do sentient beings become utterly non-existent, becoming like the ashes of a fire that has died out and not taking any rebirth at all? Do we just perish altogether? Question three. Blessed one, is it really as the worldly say it is? Do all sentient beings live on after their deaths, befriending their kin in a beginningless lineage, including fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers, and more, not taking rebirth in a future life, but living just as they do in this life? In other words, do we live in an afterlife together with our ancestors? Four, blessed one, do those who are wealthy and proud in this life go on to be wealthy and proud in the hereafter too? And do those who are poor and humble in this life go on to be poor and humble in the next? Or do people simply switch back and forth between the two? That is, are people who are wealthy in this life poor in the afterlife, and people who are poor in this life wealthy there? Question five. Blessed one, is it really as the worldly say it is? Those who in this life ride horses and elephants, wear fine clothes and ornaments, eat food and drink, do they continue in their future lives to ride, dress, and eat in the same way? Question six. Blessed one, is it really as the worldly say it is when their parents, siblings, and cousins, children, and so forth give or dedicate small portions of food or drink to someone who has passed from this world, is the deceased then able to eat and drink inexhaustibly for many eons? In other words, can people really partake of the offerings we're making? Do they eat and drink on them forever? And finally, number seven, blessed one, is it really as the world say it is? When sentient beings pass on from this world, do they later, after death, Tell their parents, siblings, children, and so forth the same things, such as stories and so forth, that they had told them earlier before they died? And do they later exhibit the same physical features to them as they had earlier before death? Are they seen and heard to do this? In other words, can we see dead people in appearances from the afterlife, in visions, in dreams, just as they were in life? So Tillemans, a translator, notes that the main position being examined in the sutra seems to be the traditional belief that the deceased survive in an afterlife, which is essentially a continuation of the present one, in the company of the same friends, relatives, ancestors, and possessions. The deceased are sustained by the offerings dedicated to them by their living relatives. They remain forever in the world of death, not taking rebirth in future incarnations. So that was the traditional belief. This position is the one the Buddha will proceed to dismantle with surgical precision and skillful reasoning. He will answer each of the king's questions in turn, but then there are two challenges to his authority to do so. The Buddha's answers. Question one. After these queries, the Blessed One replied to King Suddhodana, 
O great king, with regard to your question as whether gods are reborn as gods, and so forth, the answer is no. Suppose that when gods died, they were reborn only as gods, and not reborn as other types of beings, and the same for humans, and so forth. O great king, initially humans come from gods, and the three lower realms come from humans' engagement in non-virtue. Therefore, those gods and so forth who die are reborn in various other types of migrations. O great king, suppose moreover that the answer to this question of yours were to be yes. Then it would be logical that the quantities of the six types of beings would always be the same as they are now. But notice how the three lower realms are more numerously repopulated due to the preponderance of humans' engagement in non-virtue. So the three lower realms are the hell realms, um, the realm of the hungry ghosts, the realm of the animals. Moreover, O great king, if the arhats of today come from the ranks of humans, then it cannot be right that beings are consistently reborn in their own types. What is more, it would be impossible for anyone to obtain the fruit of being an arhat. Therefore, O great king, through virtuous and non-virtuous actions, beings are reborn as different types, such as those in the heavens and those in the lower realms. O great king, regarding your question as to whether the gods that die are reborn as other types of beings, such as humans and the like, the answer is yes. Question two. O great king, regarding your question as to whether sentient beings die and become utterly non-existent like the ashes of a fire that has died out, and as to whether rebirth is utterly non-existent, the answer is no. O great king, just as when you have a seed, a fruit will come forth, so from the seed of this life, the fruit of the next life comes about. O great king, just as the sun rises, slowly sets, becomes obscured, and then rises again the following morning, so too one passes from this life and takes rebirth. O great king, sentient beings would become extinct species if they died without any subsequent rebirth. O great king, if we take the grass and trees outside too, those that have withered will grow again through the changing of the seasons. Likewise, sentient beings will be reborn and die through actions and afflicted emotions, which are like the changing of the seasons. So, O great king, know that there are future lives. Question three. O oh, great king, you asked whether it is as the worldly say it is. You asked whether all sentient beings, after their deaths, live on, befriending their kin in a beginningless lineage, including parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and so forth, and not taking rebirth in a future life, but living just as they did in this life. O oh, great king, in this life, when a parent or a child and the like see each other, it is one embodied being seeing another, not one mind seeing another. If in this life the body perishes and is gone, then in their hereafter, how would one mind see another and befriend it? Children, nephews, and nieces who are alive and have physical forms cannot even see their deceased parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents then how would disembodied deceased people see and befriend their formless parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents? What is more, O great king, 
In this life, when the many parents, children, and other relatives get together, even then it is only their respective physical forms that appear. Unable to see even their own minds, how could children and other relatives ever see others' minds? How could they see them after death? How would they, in an afterlife, first see the children, relatives, grandparents, and great-grandparents, and then befriend them? O great king, let us suppose that an ancestor, one who had no one before him, at any point in beginningless time, and his presently existing descendants were to befriend each other in a future life. Now there are at present many different clans, castes, factions, and parties, some of which have become enemies of each other, in whose places of residence, associates of clan and caste, language and style of dress, are neither heard of nor seen. Suppose that they too issued from the same ancestor. How would you delineate which children and relatives do or do not befriend present children, relatives, grandfathers, and so forth? The offspring from this first ancestor, up to and including the presently existing relatives and children, would be alike in their respective affections and antagonisms for one another, just like the presently existing children and relatives. If this is so, who befriends whom and who fails to befriend whom? People who are now living each apprehend their own factions and parties, saying, so-and-so is our ancestor, and they determine the factions and parties, saying, we are children of the same father as so-and-so. Suppose, too, that they now each grasped as our ancestors the lineage of all the fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers, and great-grandfathers, all the way down to the first ancestor, that is, the lineage of all those who respectively apprehend each other as ancestors. And suppose, following what the worldly say, these ancestors did not take rebirth after passing from this world, but instead befriended children and relatives in an afterlife. Then they would have to befriend as one unified faction the present, presently different clans, castes, and factions, as well as all those people that have become enemies too. O great king, in this life, although people appear as embodied entities, Nonetheless, when they are in the dark or hidden, they do not see one another. Then, given that deceased beings do not have any bodies, how could they see and thus befriend each other? O great king, if embodied sentient beings who are alive now cannot even make their bodies visible to people in some other country or in the different places that they do not see, then how could they ever make their bodies visible after death? O great king, you should not listen to worldly individuals who seek fame and gain and thus deceive others with the tales they tell. Question four. O oh, great king, you asked whether those who are wealthy and proud in this life are also wealthy and proud in the hereafter, whether the poor and humble in this life go on to be poor and humble in the next, or whether people switch between the two. O oh, great king, just take sentient beings in this life who have not yet died. Some are wealthy and proud from the moment of birth, but are then poor and humble from the age of 50 or 60 onward into their old age. Others are poor and humble from birth and throughout their youth, but then from the age of 50 or 60 up until their old age, they are wealthy and proud. If that is so, then it is all the more obvious that people's riches and poverty are impermanent when they are dead. O oh, great king, to use an analogy, in, the, in this world, when conditions like warmth and moisture are present, 
Grass, trees, and other plants grow leaves, but when it is cold and dry, they wither. <clears throat> Similarly, one becomes wealthy and proud due to conditions such as generosity, but poor and humble from theft and miserliness. O great king, some people are wealthy and proud from life to life because they have always been generous. Others are poor and humble in some lives or at the beginning or end of certain lives because they were partial or had regrets about giving. Some are poor and humble after life because they always stole or were miserly. Yet others are wealthy and proud in some lives or at the beginning or end of certain lives because they regretted their theft and miserliness. O great king, being poor and humble does not come about through generosity. Being wealthy and proud does not come about through miserliness. One does not simply arbitrarily switch between riches and poverty from one life to the next. Question five. O great king, you asked whether what the worldly say is really true. You asked whether those who in this life ride horses and elephants and so forth wear fine clothes and ornaments and eat food and drink continue in future lives after their deaths to ride, dress, eat, and drink in the same ways. O great king, when humans die, they take rebirth in the heavens or in the lower realms in line with how they had practiced virtuous or non-virtuous actions. O great king, it is not as the worldly say it is. What about an apparition of a deceased individual's style of dress? In the heavenly realm, there exists an unfathomable, unimaginable, limitless world of Gandharvas. This is a type of non-human, semi-divine, celestial being or spirit. One type there is called the Gandharva who preys upon the minds of those on the verge of death. In search of the food that Gandharvas eat, they create an illusion of the body, clothes, ornaments, and style of dress of someone who lived previously. Thus, they create and display illusions of the style of breath, dress and the speech of a deceased person. But there is more here, O great king. Not only Gandharvas, but other spirits, such as Yakshas, Pishakas, and Bhuttas, also seek to trick the deceased person's fathers, sons, relatives, and so forth. Thus, these demons use their worldly magical powers to know the distinctive signs final resting place, and the history of the deceased individual. And then they use their demonic influence so that parents and others see and dream of that individual. Furthermore, O great king, consider the following. It is due also to the maturation of habitual tendencies stemming from long-standing association that one sees children and relatives and that they appear in dreams. Suppose, for example, that a person dreamed of their own presently undeceased parents, relatives, servants, or any others who might befriend them, and as well dreamed of their pleasures coming from various enjoyments, or their pleasures and pains from grappling with enemies or thieves. If the parents, relatives, and servants they dreamed of, or any others appearing in their dream, actually were to have the feelings in question just as that person dreamed they did, then that of which they dreamed would have been real. But how could the parents, relatives, and servants they dreamed of, or any others appearing in their dream, ever be thought to be real? O great king, even among living people, that which one person dreams is never felt by another. Then how could what is dreamed concerning a deceased person ever be that deceased person? 
What is involved is the maturation of habitual tendencies. O oh, great king, there's yet another analogy for this being a matter of habitual tendencies. Suppose that a person left whatever castles, houses, and cities they had been in during an earlier part of their life, and then in a later part of their life when they lived elsewhere, the city they knew previously was destroyed. This person dreams of the shape and size of their house as they were when it was neither destroyed nor scattered about, no different from before. If the city and the house were to have mental natures, then the mental nature of that house might have actually appeared to them. But since their house and city are earth and stone, then why would what that person dreamed not be a maturation of their habitual tendencies? Likewise, that which has the distinctive signs of a now deceased person is comparable to the undestroyed house of one's dreams. And if the deceased individual's mind, too, had already taken rebirth in accordance with their previous actions, then how could they actually appear to anyone? We conclude, O great king, that it is through the maturation of habitual tendencies that people see and dream of distinctive signs and styles of dress of now deceased individuals. Likewise, the appearances and occurrences and dreams of the deceased holding swords and other weapons, wearing clothes and other ornaments, and riding their horses and elephants and so forth, are also just appearances due to habitual tendencies. You should understand them along the lines of the analogy of the house. Question six. O oh, great king, you asked whether it is as the world they say it is. You asked whether those who have passed on from this world can eat and drink inexhaustibly for many eons, the small portions of food and drink given and dedicated to them by their parents, siblings and cousins, children and other relatives. O oh, great king, anywhere, be it on the four continents, in the chiliacosms, the dichiliacosms, the trichiliacosms, or in the limitless, unfathomable, unimaginable world systems, have you ever seen a sentient being who consumes one small portion of food and drink all the time and over many eons? Have you ever heard of such a sentient being? O oh, great king, Suppose that some living parents, children, siblings, and cousins who have a mutual relationship and wish to be of benefit to one another have not yet died and are still physically embodied. And suppose one of them went off to another country. Although any of the parents, children, siblings, or cousins might resolve to give and offer a lot of food and drink to that person, none of that would appear to the person who had gone off to the other country, even in their dreams, let alone food and drink in reality. So why even mention food and drink dedicated to people who have died and have no body? O oh, great king, how would those people whose minds have separated from their bodies after death use their immaterial and formless minds to take possession of the real items of food and drink provided to them by their children, siblings, and the like? Why would this be a problem? The answer is that eating and chewing depend on the workings of body parts. In that case, are the workings of the parts of the body to be found present in the mind? The great king then asked, Blessed one, if that is the case, then is it useless to offer deceased individuals the food, drink, mounts, clothes, and ornaments that were beneficial to them in this present world? The blessed one replied, O great king, 
Take the case where a deceased person is being reborn in one of various different states of being because actions he had done are ripening. And suppose people help that person by dedicating to him all sorts of virtuous actions that will constitu constitute a collection of merit without any non-virtue. In that case, the person will be reborn in higher states or attain liberation. On the other hand, when someone has already taken rebirth, then if one aids him through the dedication of a virtuous action that constitutes merit, that will aid the already reborn person to gain wealth, have good crops, more and more of the pleasures he wishes, as well as honor and respect from all his other fellow beings. However, it is not so that the deceased individual stays on in the world of death without rebirth and taking on food and drink, mounts, clothing, and ornaments. So in essence, he's saying we can, through our offerings, create merit that aids someone in their next life. This is the merit of dana. So it is a function of giving, not a function of the kind of offering. This is why we offer merit in our of our practice each time we sit or do service. Question seven. O great king, the worldly say the following. Whatever words sentient beings say and stories they tell, and whatever physical features they exhibit to their parents, sibling, and so forth, when on the verge of death, later, after death, they will tell the same stories and so forth to their parents, siblings, and children that they had told earlier before they died. And they will exhibit the same physical features to them later as they had earlier before their death. Such visions and exhibitions supposedly exist. The great king is asked whether what the worldly say is true or not. O great king, take the case of speech. Speech depends upon the vocal tract of an embodied person. So then, if the body of the dead person is left behind in this world, how could their incorporeal mind ever speak? And now, when we say that a dead person has a body, we mean that they have taken rebirth, for which parents were required. So there is no world of death either. O great king, what the worldly call characteristics and distinctive signs of the living are things fabricated by a type of Gandharva called the pervader. The so-called Vikana sorts of Gandharvas, the talkative sorts of Yaksas, and the inquisitive Barhinita sorts of Bhuttas pervade the minds of all the dying, just like a strong wind that constantly blows over the wide plains and waters, conjures up th such things. And then, in order to trick the worldly, these demons tell stories in the same way the deceased person used to do earlier and exhibit their characteristic styles of dress. So that's the end of the Buddha's answers to the questions, but the sutra continues because there are some challenges. The first is from Devadatta. Devadatta was the Buddha's cousin, and in the sutras, he is the one who's constantly jealous of the Buddha. At that time, and, and on occasion, has tried to assassinate him, but was thwarted. At that time, Devadatta was present, and not believing what the Blessed One had said, he questioned him. Gotama, you have explained whatever distinctive signs there are or are not in the afterlife that follows death. From whom did you first hear about them, Gotama? When did you come to know about them? Who heard and knew about them along with you? The Blessed One replied, Devadatta, for countless eons, I practiced numerous sorts of austerities, such as sacrificing my body. 
I purified all obstructions, perfectly accumulated a great collection of merit, and thus attained omniscient wisdom. There is nothing I do not know concerning any knowable matter before me in the past or in the limitless ten directions of the present or concerning all knowable matters that will occur in the future. Just as when the sun shines here in Jambuvipa, it does not shine over things gradually or in stages, but shines clearly all at once. So I too know in one instant everything that can be known. And thus it is said that I possess the exalted wisdom that knows all aspects. Devadatta did not believe in these sorts of statements either. In order to test whether the Blessed One actually did possess omniscience, he cut samples of a vast number of different sorts of wood, that is, all of the types of trees here on Jambuvipa, including sandalwood, waved leaf fig trees, catechu, and so forth. He burnt them and made small bags for the ashes of each one. So as not to be mistaken about which type of wood each bag of ash came from, he labeled each bag of ash with the appropriate name. He then went to the Blessed One and asked, Blessed One, if you possess omniscient wisdom, then which bag of ash belongs to which tree? And he showed him the small bags of ashes one by one. For each small bag, the Blessed One explained unmistakably which tree the ash had come from, saying, this one is sandalwood ash, this one is waved leaf fig tree ash, this one is katachu ash, and so forth. Devadatta came to believe that the Blessed One really did have omniscient wisdom. Thinking that the Blessed One's pronouncements on death were all true, he praised him in the following terms. The Blessed One is omniscient. What he has said about death must be true. Without previously seeing them or hearing of them, he recognizes these different varieties of ashes of wood. He thus praised him and was left at a loss for words. Meanwhile, at that time, the Sakya Mahanam was present also. Not believing what the Blessed One had said about death, he said, Blessed One, did you directly perceive what you have explained about the death of beings, or did you hear it from someone else? The Blessed One replied, Mahanaman, there is nothing in the world that my Buddha eye does not see. When a fresh gooseberry is placed in the palm of the hand, all of the features of the hand are conspicuous in it. So this is a reference to gooseberry is translucent. You can see through the skin, so you can see all the parts that are inside. Likewise, there is no knowable thing whatsoever in the three times that I do not see. I do not base myself on hearsay. In order to test whether the Buddha was truly omniscient or not, Sakya Mahanaman then went to the great city of Kapalavastu. From each household, he took a small bag of rice. And so that he would not mistake whose rice was whose, he wrote down the name of every Sakya he took them from and put the, these names inside the small bags. When the rice bags came to be a full load for an elephant, he went to the Blessed One and requested of him, Blessed One, if your Buddha eye sees all, then please recognize, without opening them, which Sakya's small bags of rice are which. And he put down the elephant's load of small bags in front of the Buddha. The Blessed One held up each small bag in turn and said, This one belongs to Sakya Nandaka. This one belongs to Sakya Kaya. This one belongs to Sakya Desire. And so forth, assigning the appropriate Sakya to each bag of rice and thus unmistakably, step by step, stating the names until they were finished. 
With this, Sakya Mahanaman and the others were all convinced that the Blessed One's Buddha eye saw all things. They thought that the Blessed One's explanation about death was surely right and commended him as follows. With his Buddha eye, he sees all. Unlike the worldly, he does not lie. He unmistakably knows the small bags of rice. Of everyone in Kapalavastu, the world lies about beings' deaths and how they appear in the beyond. The Blessed One has spoken truly. Praise and homage to you who sees all. So now the Buddha's explanation. The Father, the great king, then spoke. Blessed One, there are sentient beings who have committed non-virtues, such as the actions that bring immediate retribution, on account of which they come to experience the unbearable ripening of such actions. Please explain what sorts of things they should do to attain happiness. The Blessed One replied, O great king, those sentient beings who have committed non-virtuous actions, like those actions that bring immediate retribution, will become pure if they sincerely believe in the ripening of the actions and confess them deeply. If at death they regret the negative actions they committed earlier, pay homage and go for refuge to all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, their negativities will become pure. Such beings will also be reborn in high states. Do not think that there are no future lives. Nor should you think that rebirth is caused by God arbitrarily or through mere caprice and the like. Have no attachment to any worldly happiness or cyclic existence. O great king, when you pass from this world to the next and take rebirth, it is not something permanent that transmigrates in this way, nor something that is extinguished, halted, and hence non-existent. It is neither uncaused nor arisen for some, from something without a cause, nor made by an external agent. Understand it to be produced by an aggregate of causes and conditions, that is, actions and afflictive emotions. The great king then asked, Blessed one, if the transmigration and rebirth of sentient beings is not the transmigration of something permanent, nor of something extinguished, nor without a cause, nor made by an external agent, and if, moreover, the established fact of rebirth in the world beyond is difficult to understand, are there any analogies for it? The Blessed One replied, O great king, there are eight analogies for rebirth. Here are the analogies. One, the analogy of students learning that which is recited by the teacher. Two, a lamp being lit from another lamp. Three, a reflection occurring because of a mirror. Four, an impression and image coming from a stamp, like a seal or a signet. Five, fire coming from a magnifying glass. Literally, this term was a sunstone or a sun crystal, so they must have known how to make fire that way. Six, a sprout arising from a seed. Seven, the production of saliva when someone says the word sour. And eight, the sound of an echo. O great king, in these eight analogies, the fact that earlier things give rise to the later ones illustrates how nothing permanent transmigrates. The fact that later things arise from earlier ones illustrates how transmigration and rebirth 
do not occur without a cause, and that they are not of something extinguished and halted. Furthermore, O great king, all of these analogies are things that come about when three conditions are gathered together. When there are teachers, students, and sense faculties, we have recitation and language learning. When there exists butter, wicks, and vessels, we have lamps. When there are bright skies, faces, and mirrors, we have reflections. When there are signets, lumps of clay, and human manual effort, we have impressions and images from stamps. When there are crystals, sunlight, grass, and wood, we get fire. When there are seeds, earth, and moisture, we get sprouts. When there is salt, a previous experience of drinking salty water, and when the word sour is pronounced, people then begin to salivate. When someone speaks, when there is no other loud sound, and when there is a nearby mountain, then an echo will occur. These are all analogies showing how sentient beings' rebirths are not made by external agents, but are produced through the causal conditions of actions and afflictive emotions. Furthermore, O great king, the teacher illustrates this life, the, the student illustrates future lives, recitation illustrates how consciousness bridges the gap between lives. The earlier lamp illustrates this present life. The later lamp illustrates future lives. Though the later lamp arose from the earlier lamp, the fact that one existed before the other illustrates how nothing permanent transmigrates that the later one arose from the earlier one illustrates how things do not occur without causes. The mirror illustrates how future lives exist because present lives exist, how nothing real transmigrates, and how future lives definitely do exist. The stamp illustrates how one takes rebirth in a future life in accordance with actions one has done in this life. The magnifying glass illustrates how one exists as one type of being and is then reborn as another. The seed illustrates how one does not cease and become non-existent. The sour taste illustrates how one takes rebirth due to actions one has experienced. The echoing sound illustrates how one takes rebirth when causes and conditions are present without other annulling conditions. It illustrates how a reborn individual is not the same as or different from that of earlier life. Now the Buddha explains why all eight of these analogies are necessary. O great king, if I had not explained all eight analogies, but had taught only some of them, those who maintain that rebirth is due to God, arbitrary, due to mere caprice, or without any causes, would use the Shramana Gautama's analogy of recitation to say that cons consciousness will transmigrate to the next life without losing the aggregates and consciousness of this life. To those who might say this, I taught the remaining analogies. This is the analogy of transmitting learning. Some might use the analogy of the lamp to say that the aggregates in both this life and the next exist in, at one at the same, and the same time. To refute them, I taught the remaining analogies. Some others might use the mirror analogy to say that the lame are reborn lame and the fair are reborn fair because the mirror illustrates similarity. To refute them, I taught the remaining analogies. <clears throat> 
Others might use the analogy of the stamp to say that the gods who have died are reborn as gods and that humans who have died are reborn as humans. To refute them, I taught the remaining analogies. Yet others might use the analogy of the magnifying glass to say that from virtue come the lower realms and from non-virtue come high status because a magnifying glass illustrates dissimilarity. <clears throat> to refute them, I taught the remaining analogies. Some might use the analogy of the seed to say that one consciousness grows to be many. To refute them, I taught the remaining analogies. Some, too, might use the analogy of a sour taste <clears throat> because it illustrates experience to say that those who have a history of rebirth as gods will be reborn as gods, even though they have not done virtuous deeds, and that those who have a history of rebirth in the lower realms will be reborn in the lower realms, even though they have done no non-virtuous deeds. To refute them, I taught the remaining analogies. Yet some others might use the analogy of the echoing sound to say that rebirth does not come from causes and conditions, as they would maintain that such an analogy illustrates agency. To refute them, I taught the remaining analogies. It is for the, these reasons that I taught all eight analogies. Conclusion, refuting erroneous views. O oh, great king, it is not the case that life ceases, ceases with no rebirth in the hereafter, and that it is extinguished and halted. Neither is this life a permanent entity that transmigrates to the hereafter intact. People cannot take rebirth in the hereafter without any dependence upon this life, nor do they have a rebirth by simply thinking that they will take such and such a rebirth. Rebirth does not occur because people think that they rely on God and the like, and that they will thus be reborn in the heavens. Nor do people take rebirth thinking that they will be reborn wherever they wish, whether in the heavens or in the lower realms. And rebirth does not occur because people think that they will, in any case, be reborn, even without doing anything, and irrespective of causes and conditions. Nor can one say that one's aggregates perish, one dies, and that afterward there is nothing at all. One cannot, one cannot say either that after death in this world, people in the afterlife abide continuously in the world of death, and thus do whatever they did in this life without taking rebirth. Nor can one say that consciousness takes rebirth without any halt to the consciousness one has in the present life. One cannot say that the aggregates of this life and the next exist at the same time. Nor can one say that the lame are reborn lame, the fair are reborn fair, and so forth. One cannot say that gods who have died are reborn as gods, and that humans who have died are reborn as humans. Nor can one say that virtue leads to the lower realms, and that non-virtue leads to higher status. Many consciousnesses do not develop from one. Beings are not reborn as gods without having practiced virtue, nor are they reborn in the lower realms without having committed some non-virtuous deeds. Rebirth is not brought about through the actions of an external agent. Let us suppose someone asks why these things are not the case. Here's what we would reply. Someone might say about the analogy of a recitation that it shows that one takes rebirth in the next life without the consciousness of this life perishing. To eliminate this misinterpretation, we put forth the analogy of the seed. 
Indeed, if a sprout were to be produced without the seed being destroyed, then the positions of those who accept real selves would be right. However, the sprout is produced upon the destruction of the seed, that is, from something that has changed from what it was earlier on. Someone might say about the analogy of the lamp that it shows that the aggregates of this life and the next exist at one and the same time, because when one lamp is lit from another, they both exist at the same time. It is in order to rule out this misinterpretation that we put forth the analogy of echoing sound. An echo does not resound without a person having first spoken and does not occur at the same time as that speech, so the aggregates do not exist at the same time. About the illustration of the mirror, it might be said that lame people are born from lame people because of the similarity the mirror illustrates. To refute such ideas, we put forth the analogy of the magnifying glass, for a magnifying glass gives rise to a fire from which it is dissimilar. Someone might say that the analogy of the stamp shows that dead gods are born as gods and dead people as people. To rule this out, we put forth the analogy of a recitation. What illustrates the present life is the teacher, and what illustrates the next life is the student. As they are different, the teacher is not the student, nor the student the teacher. About the analogy of the magnifying glass, someone might say that it is an illustration of dissimilarity, and thus shows that virtue leads to lower states and non-virtue to higher states. To rule this out, we put forth the analogy of a lamp. A lamp does not give rise to something dissimilar to a lamp, but rather to a lamp. Similarly, it is logical that virtue gives rise to high status and non-virtue to lower status. As for the analogy of the seed, someone might say that it shows that many different consciousnesses develop. To rule this out, we put forth the analogy of the stamp, for the image produced in the lump of clay is not other than that of the stamp. Because of the analogy of the sour taste, someone might say that those who experience a history of birth as gods will always be born as gods, in spite of doing no virtue, and that those who experience a history of birth in the lower realms will always be born in the lower realms, though they have done no non-virtue. To refute this, we put forth the illustration of the mirror. For just as a face appears in a mirror as it is, so too the similar results of virtue and non-virtue would match their respective causes, and it would thus be contradictory to make them dissimilar. Some might say, with regard to the analogy of echoing sound, that echoes do not come about unless they are made by an external agent, that is, unless someone shouts. And analogously, so it might be said, beings are not born unless made by an external agent. To rule out that misinterpretation, we put forth the illustration of the sour taste. The point is that it is those who have previously had the experience of eating or drinking something who will later salivate when it is described. And likewise, it is because of previously engaging in actions and afflictions that one will later take rebirth. O great king, let it be known that such are the ways sentient beings take birth, perish, and transmigrate from this life to the next. All the retinue rejoiced and praised what the Buddha, the Blessed One, had said. So, <clears throat> so in my notes, I said, this is why there is no simple answer to the question, is there life after death? 
Our questions come out of the conditioning we have as the result of our early experiences, our family situations, our schooling, and our cultural environment. Oftentimes, they cannot be answered as they are framed because the conditioning gives us a distorted view, like the question, when did you stop beating your wife? Sometimes the Buddha would simply remain silent when asked such a question. In this case, he responded to the king's questions with great care and clarity. I found this reassuring and illuminating. It provides some ways to answer questions you might encounter from others about the Buddhist understanding of death, heaven, the afterlife, reincarnation, and so on. And it demolishes some naive and simplistic notions that are commonly held by both Buddhists and non-Buddhists about death and the hereafter. So, <clears throat> I think we have a little time if people have questions they want to raise. Um, so, I'm, um, I'm going to see if people want to raise their hand that will make it easier for us to, uh, to respond. I'll try and keep track here. So I'm assuming everybody knows how to raise hand. If you click on the participants list, you can see at the bottom there's a little button that says raise hand if you want to ask some question. Or if you want just if you want to have some reflection about this. Sunny? Don't mute you. Oh thanks. Hi, can you? Um, this was fascinating and a lot. There was a lot there. And so I'm glad you're going to send it to us, right? So we can oh, like, yeah. I kind of want to comb over it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and, I, and I think this may have been in there. I mean, I'm, I think probably all of us are fascinated by this question because for a variety of reasons. Um, and in the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, there is, I haven't finished it, but there is talk about a, something called a bija, which is a seed and an imprint, and I haven't gone down that path. Mm -hmm. So the reputations, you know, he's, you know, he's doing what a scientist would properly do, which is take the magical thinking and just destroy it, you know, like precisely, and it's so beautiful to witness. So I'm trying to figure out what's left, like he, he stripped it all away, so what's left with, like, what do we get to have? Or, or is there anything that we get to have still? I think at the bottom, what he's saying is we don't just wink out like a candle being snuffed, you know? Mm -hmm. um, there are future lives, <clears throat> but not in the simplistic way that we think of it. You know, like this personality is going to get transplanted into a new body or, you know, um, and so that's why he gives the analogy. And I think the analogies are wonderful in conveying that sense of, something continuing without a permanent essence being, you know, admitted yes. somehow. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, so the, I thought the analogies were extremely helpful and also why he felt that many analogies were necessary. Exactly. All the different kind of errors you can fall into. Right, totally. About this. Yeah. And, you know, like there's this great uh, thing on YouTube with Sam Harris and uh, Deepak Chopra. Mm -hmm. And they kind of got into it pretty hardcore because Deepak was referring to the transmigration of something, some consciousness, some, some essence. And yeah. Harris was like, well, we just don't have any evidence for it. If you, you know, scientifically, if, if it comes up, he's like, I would love to know it. But it's, that is, that is still a very lingering question in terms of this, but like, what is the transmigratorial essence? Yeah. And yeah. Like, the Buddha himself, all the Jataka tales, you know, like the. Right. For him to become. 
So it's just, it's yeah. just beautiful. I'm really grateful that you brought this in. I think it's really. Well, when I came, when I came, you know, I have some scholarly sources that uh, I get um, references all the time. Uh, uh -huh. This one, uh, and most of them are too, you know, academic to be of interest really for our purposes. But this one really struck me, especially now, um, uh, where this is a, you know, a central concern for us. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. And it helps me behave, you know. <laughs> I realize there are consequences, there are causes and consequences and conditions. Yeah. You can't just do what you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So hey. I think Joan, Joan had a question. Yeah, thank you, Sunny. So I think, uh, Anne, you have to unmute her. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm unmuted now. Yeah. Uh, well, my question is a continuation of Sunny's. Um, so part of what I see is, is he says we are not our bodies. And so our bodies definitely are cast aside. And um, I would appreciate you, if you can, putting it in real concrete terms. Um, I understand in my limited thinking on this about how in my, uh, in my way of seeing it, it's that we do live on in other people that people uh, that we... No, we live on in actual lives. Well, tell me about that. I can't tell you about that. You'll have to experience it for yourself. <laughs> well, uh, tell me your understanding. You say that very um, certainly. <laughs> well, that's what he's saying. He's saying you will have their future lives, not just in the memories of people who care about you. Um, and that he, you know, that he more or less dismantled. Um, that, that there's some substance to, let's say, the visions that people have or dreams that people have about people who have passed away. Um, but um, he categorically asserts that there are future lives and that they are shaped by the um, kinds of actions and emotions that we have in this life. So they are future lives on Earth? Yes. Uh, on yes. He categorically refutes the idea of an afterlife in which you wander around with your ancestors. He categorically refutes that. And so is it in other beings? So it could be in other animals or insects or things that move around on the earth. It depends on the causes and conditions we create in this life. So, could you give me so as, he, as he points out, if you engage in a lot of non-virtuous actions, you're, you're creating the causes and conditions for being reborn in an animal form, in a hungry ghost form, in a hell realm. Well, and he talks about how there continue to be more. Uh, yes, because people continue in non-virtuous actions. You know, there are more people in the three lower realms. There are more creatures in the three lower realms because people continue to engage in non-virtuous actions, creating the causes and conditions for an unfortunate rebirth. Look at our politicians right now. So these people, these, uh, if we're just talking about humans, what insects would be reborn also? Is that right? Or is it just humans? I don't, he's talking, he's talking about, he's talking to humans about humans. So I don't know that he has anything to say about insects being reborn. Okay, so there are going to be more and more and so, and, and these people are recycled and... I don't think you can think of it that way quite. Yeah. 
Well, some are recycled. Yes, some, some, not written. I wouldn't say you can't you can't really describe it that way any more than you can say that a candle that's lit from another candle is a recycled candle. <clears throat> well, no, those are two different candles. That's right. But a person dies, but then goes into another something. Well, all of the aggregates dissolve. And what does that mean by aggregates? The form, the sensations, the consciousness, right? They end at the time of death. So what goes on? This is what the Buddha is describing with his eight analogies. What goes into the next rebirth? Yeah. I guess I will let another questioner. <laughs> Yeah. So no more questions? You have to think about it, right? I think when I send it out, you have a chance to review it again, you know, in print and, and um, reflect on and if you have more questions about it definitely send me emails but I am not the Buddha so I'm not the person to provide the Buddha's answers I can only give a perspective from my point of view the we sunny have, we have yeah Chad has a question oh um, one thing God that's fascinating I uh, love it and uh, one of the things that I was thinking about is a lot of this turns on self-definition of what we consider ourselves to be uh, when we say being reborn, that pre, pre, presupposes that we have an, uh, an idea of what ourselves is to That's be right. reborn. So That's I think right. the definition of ourselves is a big um, uh, component of understanding what the Buddha was speaking to. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, on the, on the gross level, am, am I my horses and my mansions and my clothing and the food that I eat? Or... Am no. I the um, family I'm part of, or am I, you know, am I the work that I do? Am I? Um, How do you uh, self-define? Am I my memories? You know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And how big out do you self-define to, in the sense of, am I a collection of all my experiences and people's influence? I mean, that line is a very. Um, yeah. So essentially, what he's saying is, what goes forward are your actions. Your afflictive emotions, your intentions. Yeah. So that's what carries forward. And, um, and in essence, what he's saying is that, um, what goes forward is your karma. Yeah. Which is an energetic, almost embodiment of experiences, not a physical form, but even the self-definition of how you understand um, maybe what you are and what you aren't is pivotal to understanding maybe how the Buddha, um, I mean, I think there's maybe a disconnect sometimes between what the audience thinks or the questioning thinks of themselves being as what the Buddha thinks of a person being maybe or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah. You know, well, I, ultimately what, what, what's interesting about this is we're, it's not a function of our, uh, birth status. It's not a function of our 
accumulation of wealth or degrees or anything else um, that we think define us. It's not an accumulation of ideas and models and theories. It's not a belief system. What, what, what is continuously being created is out of our intentions and our actions. Yeah. So that's what proceeds. Mm -hmm. Everything else is accidental. Yeah. Right? And that it's our body, um, because we see our body, we get confused a lot, I think, between what we are. Yes, there's no question about that. Yeah. There's a lot of confusion, actually. You know, um, and yeah. you can see, what I see when I talk to people is what their identification is. Are they identified with their body? Are they identified with their ideas? Are they identified with their emotion states? None of those are enduring. None of them. So if you want to identify with anything, identify with your vow. Yeah. Yeah. And the activity of it. And the, and, and the expression of it. In right. the world, manifestation of it. Yeah. And talking that's about great. that as far as rebirth, that's a whole different conversation than if you're thinking about a body Right. as in yourself and you're thinking about that as a rebirth mm -hmm. those are very different um, that's right of thinking and it makes sense to me then that um, that there would then be in the sort of refinements that the Tibetan culture has made around issues of reincarnation a recognition of that karmic stamp on a new being yeah exactly right, mm -hmm. right. Um, so like the impression of a stamp right but that's so, very um, difficult if you thought of yourself, your most of your life, as this um, as a different type of being. Yeah, you know right. that. Right. Jump, well, you can right. embrace right. it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. It's just a category error, you know. As yeah. Adi Ashanti says, it's an innocent mistake. Yeah. We actually make a mistake. Yeah, yeah. we misidentify. Fascinating. Thank you. Are there any other hands raised? Uh, Lori's um, hand is up, so maybe we'll see what what her question is. Lori. Okay, I'm unmuted. Uh, yeah, I just thought that was real interesting, what, what Chet was saying. And also, um, that a part of that, as I understood it, was merit. And the merit was not just what you have gain through your own actions, but the merit that others offer to you. That's right. Which, which is a really interesting inclusion. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He doesn't, he doesn't want to deny the, um, I think the heartfelt aspiration to offer as part of the, our, our expression of our vow, our karmic, um, you know, actions and intentions. Right, so it has to do with your intentions rather than what is offered. Um, so, uh, so those have efficacy, right? Which is kind of an interesting thing to think about. None of these are things you're supposed to believe. Um, you should really test them against your own understanding and yeah. see how it feels. But for me, there was a lot of resonance, and I just thought this. This solves so many issues and questions I had about how to describe to other people what we're talking about in Buddhism when we're talking about rebirth. Yeah, although it's still it's, it's still kind of murky what the as we were saying earlier what what comes forward um, and how that uh, yeah what comes forward into the next life. 
I think he's very clear about that, actually. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So what, the, what is the, that? Um, the actions and the emotions. The actions and the emotion states. So those create the causes and conditions for uh, how we'll take on another life. Really interesting, too, because it plays into that whole thing about... Um, um, well, yeah, but there's nothing substantial that comes forward. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, okay, I'm done. Thank you. Nate and then Heather. Hi there. Um, can, can you say a little bit more about the, um, so you said the actions the afflictive emotions and attentions are the three things that carry forward. I, I'm fuzzy on the emotions, the afflictive emotions. I'm just processing that a bit. <laughs> well, you, you know what they are, you know. Yes. Um, uh, the issue is that if we carry these afflictive emotions, they're going to have an imprint in the future life. So if you, um, you know, if you harbor greed, for example, mm -hmm. there's going to be an imprint that goes forward into the future life. So, um, so there's a very good reason to remove the afflictive emotions from our, you know, practice. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I and I think one of the thing, ways to think about this is we're always creating the causes and conditions for whatever comes ahead of mm -hmm. us whether it's another life or whether it's the next moment. Mm -hmm. So how, how do we create the causes and conditions for uh, well-being, you know, for liberation and freedom? Mm -hmm. uh, and we can see ourselves doing the opposite. So, <laughs> right? Right. I mean, that's a terrible thing about practice is you can start to watch yourself doing it. Yeah. Setting it up, you know? Um, so gradually we get more skillful at not you know setting up those pins and knocking them down again you know so yeah yeah okay heather heather and then sunny so um along different lines uh, i thought it was interesting it, it sounded to me as if there was a distinction made uh, between the legitimacy or illegitimacy of visions of dead ancestors carrying swords or wearing clothes and other possible communications of some type. Um, I mean, it sounded as though there was the potential for some type of communication that was not um, just a mind meeting another mind or the intervention of demons. Was that, what was your understanding of that? He says it's a result of our habitual tendencies, which means the memories that we have of the person um, and um, the imprint that those memories make uh, and the uh, tendency that we have to recall things in the past, right? So, um, so it can be evoked that way, but, but he categorically denies that there's direct communication with people who have died, yeah. Yeah, he categorically denies that. Okay. So, uh, any more than in those days, of course, now you can do it, but any more than you could communicate with someone who's gone to another country. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, he's, he's, he's pretty clear about that in this. You'll see when you get the copy and you can read it over and see what you think. I, I, the thing I liked about this particular sutra is there's not a lot of redundancy in it. It's very accessible. You can see, you, anybody can understand the questions that the king asks. There are our own questions. And some of them come out of the culture of his time, the traditions of his time. But, um, but the clarity of the Buddha's answer is very obvious. You know, there's, um, there's a lot there to think about, for sure. Yeah. It's good to see you. So is that it? Then Sunny, I think. You guys, like Chet and I have always questions. So you know we just make <laughs> raise our hand. I'm just saying. So I hope it's not intrusive. No, uh, we'll, we'll end in a few minutes, but this will okay. be the last question. Okay, because I had I was raising my hand and Chet suddenly was no, like, I want to raise his hand. <laughs> <laughs> troubles, just troubles. Uh, so I was thinking about, well, first of all, the the refutation of these things is painful for many of us because we want to believe in these things. And so there's a sort of compassionate ruthlessness that is happening that feels like, because um, I want, I would like to believe I can communicate with people that have died that I love. I would love to think that, you know, yeah, it, it's clear that it's, it's like a magical wish that I have. And so, well, if you, if you, um, if you feel that there's sense in what the Buddha is saying, yeah, right, exactly. And that's direct, I'll test that, you know, on my yeah. own. But, but I, I, I just, I don't know, there's something loving, inherently loving in what he's doing. Yeah. And then the other thing that I wanted to say to Nate was like the afflictive emotion piece. Um, so the, the Dalai Lama, the, the, there's a lot of emphasis in the Tibetan tradition around anger and not, um, and sort of like, it's a flame. And so it's always about like sort of snuffing the flame. And I think that's about that piece, like, when you put anger out, it's like a wave. It's like hitting a gong, and then it hit, and then it sort of transmits this wave of hatred or aggression that is that does go somewhere. So I don't know that that's you know the truth or whatever, but that's the way I think of it. It's like energetically, uh, every, you know, smile like a happiness is contagious, and so is rage. You know, yeah. Even just on a social level, at, a, at like a direct experience, you know, if I flip somebody off when I'm driving, that transmits to them. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, so, and so I don't, you know, and I don't know how it ripples out in space time, but I know that there's always an emphasis in that tradition about anger because it's so powerful. And yeah, it, but it's not so much about suppressing it as about really intimately right. knowing it as it's really a dharma gate, like all of the emotions are. The afflictive emotions are dharma gates. But part of what we're here in this lifetime to learn is how to work within them mm -hmm. and use them for liberation and not uh, for punishment or for damage, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. To transform them, really, to beneficial use. Exactly. Oh, one thing I was going to say that when I was a kid, I was an exchange student in Japan, and I noticed myself very different embodiment and culturally when I was almost like the culture that I wear in the United States and when I lived in Japan. And it's really fascinating because we all contribute to the culture around us, right? It infects us and we influence it. And I think mm -hmm. there's something to this cultural that we're contributing to. If I'm reborn and I'm reborn in the United States versus born in, as an animal in Africa or born in a Japanese, uh, you know, the culture that we're creating lives a little bit longer after us. It maybe mm -hmm. in some sense, our actions influence the culture 
in which we're reborn. I don't know, but something along those lines that our good merit influences the the, the water. future incarnations of things. Yeah, because I know wherever I would be born, it, a lot of my, myself would be determined based on whatever situation that I'm born into. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, that's that's how we develop our conditioning. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that we influence that culture also that we're living in, in almost like a drop in the ocean right. uh, contribution to that culture. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. There's it, no question it, about that. So mm -hmm. it gets to the bigger outside of just the individual into right. our influence on the bigger culture and how and that's that. Why, that's why it's so important to practice. Yeah. So that that, inf that influence is beneficial and liberating. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, we should finish up and do service because we're running late, but I knew this was going to be a little bit longer today uh, just because the sutra is a little long. So we'll do service. sense, observing silence, and hearing the sutra of the Buddha's answers to questions on death and transmigration, we extend compassionate care to Ben and Susan and Elliot.
And all those who are gravely ill, lacking basic necessities, or suffering violence in the world in thought, word, or deed, may they be serene through all their suffering, and may they, together with all beings, realize the awakened way. <clears throat> Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering. Holding the self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering. Holding the self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, Compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering. Holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher. Being just this moment, compassion's way. Let us be respectfully reminded, life and death are of supreme importance. Time swiftly passes by, and with it our only chance, each of us must strive to awaken. Be aware. Do not squander our life. There's one thing I forgot to mention today. Um, Flint's father passed away, and so we have his name on the altar. and. Um, uh, I just wanted to let you know it was not unexpected, uh, but still, um, it's his father. So, have a wonderful week. I'll see you next time.